welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives Podcast. Today we're talking about churches. I'm Jen Mathiason, an objects conservative based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. A special guest host. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Janet Berry and I'm the Head of Conservation for the Cathedral and Church Buildings Division in the Archbishop's Council for the Church of England. Ooh, welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for having me Thanks today. for joining us. Yes, yeah, thank you for coming. <laughs> That's it. No problem. Oh, we're bribing you with fish and chips. I know. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Excellent. So, so are we. And good cups of tea. Oh, yes. Good cups of tea. Um, should we do some news first? Let's do some news. So the government has recently announced um, that they're going to be funding £1.8 million for a pilot scheme to build um, a sustainable future for listed places. Places of worship. How Yay! topical yeah. is that? I know, I know, right? Yeah. Um, my final piece of news is an international one. It's a call for papers for the 14th International Symposium on Wood and Furniture Conservation, um, which is being held in Amsterdam on the 23rd and 24th of November this year. Um, and the deadline for submissions for that one is the 8th of May. Ooh, so, so get writing, yeah. uh, wooden furniture peeps, because there's lots of fun to be had in Amsterdam. Ooh. And there's lots of wooden furniture in churches. Yes. So please, oh, please. Yes. yes. Put in your papers. Yeah, do it. Today, the topic is churches and all the things you find inside them. And I, I'm quite enthused. I, I'm enthused because I'm uh, the, I'm a church nerd, uh, which sounds... I did not know that which about is, you. It's just very odd because pe- people who may know me know that I'm, you know, a best agnostic, sometimes a bit <laughs> on the pagan side. But, you know, it's uh, like... Very Swedish. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> very liberal in, in my in my religious views. So they, they're sometimes a bit astonished that I, I'm really into churches and church architecture and the stuff that you find in them. But on Honestly, it's how I got started in conservation, which is a, a strange, a strange little tale. Oh gosh, that's fantastic! <laughs> yeah. So my first experience of real conservation was I kindly asked a regional museum where I lived in Sweden. I'd heard of conservation and I, I'd like to study it, but I was having a gap year in between school and university. So I, I kind of asked any opportunity at all to like do some conservation, like anything. And they went, well, well, we're going to the East Coast in a bit and we're going to uh, sit in a medieval church for a bit and clean some things. Do you, do you want to come along? So I spent a, a couple of days in a, in a church cleaning coats of arms that were hanging in the... Church straight there on the pews, and we were crouched around them, cleaning them. And people came up to us and asked us about it, and it was wonderful. So that was my first experience, my first little traineeship, and then I went off to university. It's cool. That is that's that's fantastic, and that's wonderful conservation in situ of working objects in churches. It's amazing. That's brilliant. Yeah. So that that was my first experience, like proper hands-on experience of conservation. That is amazing because I think I always forget. I, I think I'm probably uh, once again the person in the group that knows the least about a topic that we're discussing on the podcast. And, and I think I haven't. I haven't had much experience with church conservation of churches and in churches. And I think I forget that it must. It also includes everything that's in them because of the environmental conditions within them and how that shapes yeah, the attitudes and the conservation approaches. Yeah, because they are often active 
objects and you know things that are used and seen and sometimes touched a lot and yes it's it's uh, crazy beautiful they are they are they're living breathing buildings with working objects our clocks tell the time we ring our bells we use our altar frontals we use our church plate we sit on our pews Mm -hmm. we baptize people in our fonts so yes it's all in use in active use and the stained glass is actually performing a function to keep out water and wind in the buildings as well as also being beautiful whilst also being beautiful (laughs) and telling bible stories so there's all of that that's um in our church buildings so they are they're active they're in use they're alive and we want to keep them alive so that you're absolutely right that that then um works through what the conservation options are for it because we're not museums we don't put things in display cases, very rarely put things in display cases, because they're, they're in use and they're being used by the people who use the church. Mm. So, uh, But as you say, the environment inside them is um, designed for the people as well as the objects. So that does relate to what you can do in the conservation of them. I wanted to start, first of all, by giving a big thank you. First of all, for inviting me. And secondly, when um, I was invited to come along to this podcast, the Church of England has a number of conservation committees. So it has six conservation committees and one fabric repairs committee. So we've got 54 experts who are all volunteers who give their time to us to provide advice to our 15,700 churches and 42 cathedrals. Um, And when I found out that I was uh, going to be uh, speaking to you today, I contacted our conservation committee members and asked them, if you were on this podcast, what's the information that you would like to, you would like other conservators to know about? So I would like to give a big thank you to all our committee members who sent um, information back because they have provided all of the information that I'm going to be talking about today. They've provided some really wonderful advice on working in churches. And one of the big things that came out of this is this idea that our objects are actually, they're not individual objects on their own they have to be seen in that round they have you have to look at the bigger picture of what's happening to the object and so you have to if you have say a painting and it's starting to flake then you could undertake conservation work of it you could consolidate it but the bigger picture is why is it flaking Mm. what's happening to it so One of the things that we're very keen on is that conservators address the underlying causes of deterioration of objects. And one of the things that I really like, that I find, is that with the objects, I like to think of them as the canary in the cage. I don't know if you know Uh, that concept. So it's the concept where um, we've got these amazing buildings. Many of them have survived hundreds of years. And the objects inside them are actually going to be the most environmentally sensitive materials Mm -hmm. in those buildings. And so quite often when um, I go on site visits and we see an object and the object is, is deteriorating. And when you start to look at why that object is deteriorating, you can pick up on other things that are happening in the building. So, for example, if you've got rusting iron clamps in a sculpture, why are those iron clamps rusting what's happening there where's the source of moisture and so you can start to pick up on bigger buildings issues that need to be addressed 
before you can actually do conservation of the object. It's a bit like your objects act as your environmental monitoring system. They do. They do. Yeah. Yes, we, because we don't necessarily have environmental monitoring systems in all of yeah. our buildings. We've got you know, quite a lot of them. So yes, they, they are acting as that monitor yeah. to, so that you can see what's happening in your building. So one thing that we're very keen on is that conservatives who are working in churches are looking at that bigger picture. We don't expect conservators to be the people who are solving those problems because our conservators aren't necessarily architects, they're not surveyors, Mm. but they can highlight, they may be able to highlight what's happening to say, well, this is a sign that there's damp. Yeah. So where's that damp coming from? Yeah, so you can help flag up the... The potential problems. It's that bigger picture. Yeah. Accredited conservators have a role to play alongside accredited architects, accredited Mm -hmm. surveyors, archaeologists. And so we have a role to play there. So the conservators should be part of those discussions that are being had. Also with the information that the parish can provide, where they say, oh, well, we always see that drain pipe dripping. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) So you can build up a really good picture if you're working together with the parish. And so the conservators really need to be part of those conversations. So it's a lot of collaboration. It's a lot of collaboration. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And that brought up another point that so many of the conservation committee members brought forward, which is communication and interaction with the clients and with the other professionals and understanding the expectations of the client Mm -hmm. now this is something that i'm sure Mm -hmm. all conservators have to deal with yeah but but it can be more more straightforward in some cases than in others you know it's i i would imagine if it's someone owns a painting and hangs in their home you know it's very straightforward kind of like this is the client that you're dealing with and this Mm -hmm. is the Mm -hmm. stakeholder as for as soon as you you're going out for more of a community project then you've got loads of stakeholders loads of ideas uh loads of uses so things can be very, very kind of two-dimensional in how you have to mm-hmm. approach them. And things can be you know, five-dimensional, you know, it's just very like... Very much living yeah. communities. Yes, it? yes, absolutely. Yes. Something that's actively used. Yes. Yes, it is. And, and sometimes you can get um, a parish will come to a conservator to say, well, we'd like this doing. And once the conservator's undertaken a condition report, they may find that actually that's not the thing that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. So then it's a question of managing those expectations, but mm-hmm. looking at, well, why does that, why does something different possibly need to be done with mm-hmm. it? Um, so there's all those things about managing expectations. It's also quite an interesting one in terms of the process that you have to go through in order to get work done. I don't know if you know anything about, if I said faculty, whether <laughs> it means anything i get an idea instantly and it's all very official and it's stern. And loads and loads it a of paperwork stern and it's, <laughs> I don't it's, know a, why. Stern. it's a stern it's, piece of paper yeah. yes <laughs> it's it's basically um the church of england has um ecclesiastical exemption from Ooh. the secular planning system so we run our own planning system but it's an equivalent of the secular planning system and for historic interiors, so if there are any changes that are going to be made to a uh, an object that's of special archite- architectural, archaeological, art historical, aesthetic merit, then permission has to be applied mm-hmm. for. 
Now, why this is important for conservators as contractors Mm -hmm. is that before you start any work, if you're doing any treatment, you need to make sure that permission is in place for you to do that work. Mm. And does that include objects that are within churches and the property of the church? Yes. Right. Yes. So it's... um, it's the historic interiors. It's also the fabric of the building mm-hmm. and also in char- churchyards. Oh. So, for example, if there are listed monuments, uh, table tombs, then there may be other monuments, then there will be regulations that apply to those. So it's really important that you see the document. Ah, oh, yes. I never even considered the, this. I'm writing it down mission. for my own purposes. Here. I'm just <laughs> making a note. Yes, I'm just going to put a, very a good point. star next to that. Yes, it's go. really <laughs> important that um, the term that we use for that permission is faculty. Mm. Uh-huh. So you need to see the faculty. But it, essentially, it's you need to know that you've got permission. And it's really mm-hmm. important that you see the document. Rather than so trust you, someone that, of course, oh, we have wow. permission. Uh, we, we talked to the bishop's son on Sunday. He said it was fine. <laughs> you know, you, you can't. <laughs> like, yes, it's no, really important point. that you see the documentation yeah. oh, so wow, that you I know that you that. have permission mm-hmm. yeah. to undertake the works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because the whole faculty process... Um, can be, um, you said stern, rigorous. Yeah, <laughs> rigorous think, yeah. is another word for it. <laughs> um, and it can take a long time as well. So you need to have patience with the system because it can actually take a long time. First of all, the parish in the first place may have thought that they needed work to um, a sculpture, mm-hmm. to a monument. And then they find out that actually the monument's deteriorating because they have a damp problem. They may have a problem with their guttering or their roofing. And therefore, what initially was... A bit of work to a sculpture. A bit sculpture. of work to a sculpture. <laughs> it's now roof work be, and sculpture. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. It might be roof work. It might need, uh, they may need um, drainage mm. uh, undertaking. So suddenly mm-hmm. it's turned into something a little slightly bigger. Mm-hmm. And then they will need to obtain faculty for any of the works that need to be undertaken. And then they have to fundraise for the project. I was going to say, does that tend to, is there other processes in place that apply for the faculty at the same time as applying for the funding and that sort of process? Or is it all very... It's very dependent on the parish and the diocese and the funding body. Mm -hmm. Um, There are... Some dioceses where um, there is a charge applied to applying for faculty. Therefore, some parishes will only want to... Um, faculties last for a certain period. Once you've oh, got it, you only have a, a certain number of years mm-hmm. in which you can do that work. So some parishes will want to fundraise before they actually apply for faculty. That Whereas sense. in other places, they mm-hmm. actually want to know that they've got permission in place and that the work that they're doing, the work that they're proposing to be done is appropriate Mm -hmm. so that they've had all their permissions um, it's gone through all of the processes and therefore they know that when they're applying for funding that's what they're going to do yeah so it all depends on where you are in the country Mm. and it will depend some parishes will have the funds available already some um, will have to do a lot of fundraising for it so it all depends Mm. it's all you there is no case by case basis it is a case by case basis but is what's really helpful is um, if conservators who are working in churches keep an ear to the ground in terms of what funding might be available. So, for example, our organisation, I work for um, the Cathedral and Church Buildings Division. We're also known as Church Care. 
And we have a website that is churchcare.co.uk, but we're just about to move to the main Church of England website. So we'll become, I think it's churchofengland.org slash churchcare. But if you type in churchcare, you'll find us. And we have grants available for conservation of um, historic interiors and churchyards. And we're very grateful to all of our funders um, providing that. So we've got funding from, I have to say, um, <laughs> we have funding from the Pilgrim Trust, from the Radcliffe Trust, from the Worshipful Company of Goldsmiths. And uh, for our fabric repairs, um, the Wolfson Foundation fund our programme of fabric repairs grants. <laughs> so, but we have funding available. Crucially, we also have funding available for the conservation reports and for those oh. initial investigations mm-hmm. that need to be undertaken. Oh, that was going to be so valuable. Yes, because quite- I immediately started worrying like, well, how, how do you get <laughs> yeah. a poor conservator to do a do an assessment. Um, so we're really, really pleased that, that um, the Pilgrim Trust has recognised the That's issues brilliant. that we have. And so we have a certain amount of money yeah. every year that we can put towards those conservation reports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, knowing about those, looking up those grants on Church Care website, we also have on our website, we have a page of other grants that are, are available because there are other places that fund mm-hmm. various things. So it's um, it helps if the conservators who are working in churches keep their ears to the ground so that they can make suggestions of where churches, mm-hmm. where parishes can approach, who they can approach to actually help fund their projects. That's another role, communication. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah. But it's also, it's good to know that there's a place to go for that sort of information. Yes. Because I imagine, I feel like I would be very much at a loss to know where to start looking if, yeah, if someone think, approached oh God, me and went, where do I? No and HLF, that's all I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly, yeah. right? So yeah. that's very helpful. That's brilliant. Yes. Good HLF resource. Good mm-hmm. And with HLF projects, conservation and the role of conservators and the advocacy that mm-hmm. conservators can do really works well with HLF projects mm-hmm. because you can do um, we have conservators who do talks on the work that they've done so um, they uh, we had a wonderful project it wasn't an HLF project it was a project with a parochial library out in Essex where a group of students from Camberwell worked with a books conservator um, undertaking remedial care of um, a collection a library collection in the church I feel like I read about this. Yes, you might have done. You might I, have done. This feels very Hatfield familiar. Hatfield Broad Oak. Yes. Yeah, yes. It, no, it, it was a fantastic this. project. And the students worked in the church and the church was open. So anybody could come in and ask the students what they were up to. Outreach, engagement, Outreach, engagement. education. Yeah. Amazing. All of those <laughs> things. We would like to do more of those kind of projects where we're doing outreach with, with students and and with the conservators so the conservators are helping with the education the students are learning how to deal with Mm -hmm. uh, members of the public who come in and ask them but also the the conservation work that was being done there was very much remedial conservation and it was um, emergency conservation of the books so they weren't actually conserving the whole books Mm -hmm. they were just packing them uh, doing uh, basic repairs and then putting them back in the mm-hmm. library. Um, the library itself was undergoing, it uh, had fabric repairs that it needed to mm-hmm. to be done. 
and um, they were looking at installing um, uh, a heater on a conservation uh, on a humidistat, so looking mm-hmm. at humidistatic control in that particular space mm-hmm. rather than the rest of the church, just that, just that particular space. So they, they were looking at it in the round. So that was a really good project involving a number of a mm-hmm. number of conservators and uh, Camberwell and the parish as well. So the parish got their parochial library looked after. Um, the students got experience. The conservators got to do the work. And so it, it was a win-win-win. It was a fantastic project. Yeah, sounds so, really good. Yeah. We want more of those kind of projects. <laughs> I, I remember I remember reading about it and thinking, oh, this, this, this looks brilliant. And also I hadn't really considered that churches had books because... Uh, yeah. Somehow it hadn't occurred yeah. to me. Obviously, they do. They do. I hadn't considered that. I mean, no. the pennies only just dropped. A lot, of, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the libraries are now in local records offices mm-hmm. yes. or local libraries. But there are still a fair number of libraries, parochial libraries in situ. Does it does it ever get a bit complicated with that kind of church objects that can be external it's, as well? With parochial libraries, there are there there are going to be agreements in place. Mm-hmm. In our collection, we definitely have some church silver, for example, Ooh. which I I think there's some sort of agreement that we're keeping it safe. Oh, I see. Um, so is that a long term yes. loan agreement yes. situation? Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, a lot of church plate is kept safe in um, museums or cathedrals. Have repositories mm-hmm. for um, some of the diocesan silver. It's for security reasons. Yeah. Yeah, so it's that, that's one of those things that it's very much on, on under lock and key. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? So uh, it's so you do find church things in museums. Yes. Um. So that can be church silver, or it can be things from churches that no longer exist. That can be masonry or yeah. beautiful things that used to be mm-hmm. in them, statues, that sort of thing. So sometimes things do survive longer in museums mm-hmm. because the original mm-hmm. church building doesn't exist anymore. But I actually quite favour that things stay in the churches because there's something to discover there like in situ which is quite nice mm-hmm. so it's you don't have to go to a museum you, you just turn up at the church and go yeah. oh look it's all the stuff in it you know it's <laughs> yeah that's that's the kind of how it's meant to be experienced yeah. which is uh, i think a real point for both things staying in situ mm-hmm. and for working in situ with them if at all yes. possible because actually that's a real experience yeah you're g- gonna be cold you're gonna have to wear <laughs> yes. an awful lot of knitwear <laughs> yep you're going to have to do a couple of star jumps every now and then to make sure you've got <laughs> dexterity <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> and uh, you can't work with all your chemicals because you're not in a necessarily very well ventilated area and you've probably got members of the public walking about. But it's really fun. It is genuinely a lot of fun to do. So if you ever have the opportunity, I would recommend it. Yes, definitely. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, definitely. We um, we need more people <laughs> who um, will work in churches as uh, I listened to the podcast from Sally Woodcock. Oh, yes. Who, of yes. course, has done lots mm-hmm. of wonderful yes. work in churches and was a member of one of our conservation committees at one point. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Oh. Yes, she's wonderful. Yes, it, it can be cold. Yes. It can be damp. Um, yes. Yes, and you're not necessarily working in ideal museum conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what you can achieve for that parish is uh, the, the wonderful stories that you can bring out. I thought we might have a quick chat about the challenges of working in church. It's very much the kind of practical nitty gritty of, hey, you're a conservator, you're in a church, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we already mentioned they're going to be cold. Uh Uh-huh. They're going to have to wear a lot of layers. Uh Uh-huh. But we're conservators, we have the best knitwear. Well, yeah, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Though 
hashtag no network here, nowhere here. I mean, yeah, that's, that's true. Let's bring that up from was it series one? Yes, that's right. Always um, knitwear here. I'm afraid <laughs> you can't wear other very warm things. You can have a like lot of silk what? underwear. Yeah. Oh, blimey! Well, you might. But <laughs> I really recommend it. Silk underwear, that's the bomb. But no hats for men in churches. Oh, really? Yeah, yes. okay, so no hats. No, no hats, hats for men in churches. Even if okay. it's chilly? You're not allowed to wear a hat. Mm. I didn't know But that. this does not apply to women. No. Mm. no. Okay, female conservatives don a hat. I think my number one pet peeve with working in medieval churches... Uh, by the way, uh, aside from that one-off conservation experience, uh, I did a bit of uh, church archaeology... Uh, later in my life as part of my studies because my first degree was in kind of building conservation and looking after monuments uh, and archaeology oh what a mix <laughs> and <laughs> so uh i took church archaeology because i really love all churches right i love reading buildings and seeing how they've been built and all the mishmash of features and oh look there's a doorway that nobody's ever noticed uh because it's bricked up you know i love that stuff back in the days when i spent a lot of time in churches like that number one pet peeve Sometimes you can't pee anywhere. I know <laughs> really? that's not PC yes. to say, but depending on what kind of facilities this particular church has, I mean, if you're in the middle of a field, it's very rural, very remote. It's never had any like modernization done to it. There is nowhere to pee. And this is generally a problem. So you might be able to hike it down the road. And <laughs> it might be that there's a nice neighbor who's like, oh, you're working in the church. Come in, have a pee and a cup of tea. Oh. Uh, you know, so <laughs> you need one of yes. you're going to do a lot of bonding with the local people because yes. there might not be any facilities. No. That's that's a problem. It's it it's a genuine problem. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it's something to take into account. It is. When Plan. <laughs> you, yes. When you're, when you're planning your budget. Mm. Also, travel, yeah. accommodation. Oh, yeah. Where, you uh, where are you going to stay? Yeah. How long is it going to take you to get there? Yeah. How are you going to get food in yes. the middle of the How field? Are you going to get that, food? You're going to have to plan some packed lunches. Yes. Yes. All of those things need to be taken into consideration. Yes. So th- th- there is a lot of logistical planning involved, and you're going to need to figure out how to we. <laughs> if you're a man, you could presumably just go out and do your thing, right? But well, we come down that. <laughs> but I can't but, do yeah. that. So. It's, no, it's it's a genuine thing, and it's something. It comes back to communication and talking yeah. to the parish. Yeah. About like, how what, do you recommend that we go yes. about this? <laughs> yes. What are their expectations about what you're going to be doing? Do yeah. they expect you to be there for eight hours without a toilet or any um, facilities? Yeah. My experience of going on site visits is that um, the parishes are amazing and we get to places and there will be tea and coffee provided. Even Aww. if there are no tea and coffee facilities there, mm-hmm. they will bring hot flasks, yeah. a big flask of hot coffee for oh, us. Yeah. And it's just absolutely lovely. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've had one, I had one situation um, a couple of weeks ago where there were no toilets. It was a church in the middle of a field. Uh, where you had to go down a, a muddy path to get to. So we all had boots and wellingtons on. <laughs> um, but the parish, uh, there was a, a little community centre that was about five, ten minutes walk away that the parish had uh, booked for the day so that we could go to the loo. Mm. And um, they provided lunch for us because oh, also they knew that there was there was nowhere for lunch. Oh, that's so nice. And it was, it was just amazing. And you realise those are the they can be the pet peeves but also they're the perks of the job yes that's true <laughs> yeah. because you're you working with way. these amazing people who are genuinely grateful mm, yes. that you're helping them yes that's and true. so they will provide um things that you you don't expect what's also important in the planning stage when you're um 
if you're doing a condition survey or condition report, conservation report, is each parish has what's known as a terrier. And the terrier, so if the parish asks you, do you want to see my terrier? They're not asking you to see a dog. Don't worry. <laughs> it is their, um, it's their book. It's their inventory. Ah, I see. Of everything that they have. So it's an inventory of the land, the building, but also all the contents. Clearly very valuable to see, actually. Very valuable yeah. to see it. But also they should keep log- a logbook of everything that happens to the building and to the church. So the if you're looking at an object, then you will want to see the logbook to see if anything's happened to it. Because it may note down mm-hmm. if there's any damage that's happened. Mm-hmm. You know, if, oh dear, you know, the, that that fell against that font and that knocked a chip in it in 1996. <laughs> so you can find out the history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. Each church also, every five years, has a survey, a building survey, which is known as the quinquennial inspection report. So also asked to see that because that might have in it the building defects that may be causing the damp. Oh, They of may course. be highlighted. Yeah. So you need to know about that. Um, so there's all of that information which involves talking to the parish to yeah. ask them for all mm-hmm. this paperwork mm-hmm. yeah. which is helpful to your job yes. to find out more about the object yeah there's also the church of england record center mm-hmm. is a central repository for information that the church buildings council and before that the council for the care of churches used to keep on all uh, on churches they, the staff there are incredibly helpful. And so you can go and see the parish records at the Church of England Records Centre. They're based in Bermondsey in London, mm-hmm. but they're going to be moving to Lambeth Palace oh, in a few, couple of years' time when we get our new library at Lambeth Palace. It'll be amazing. <laughs> um, but that's also useful to phone them up to find out if they, if there's any information in their records. Mm-hmm. Now, the records can range from one church record that I pulled up had um, of a medieval church had one picture from 1946 in it. That was it. Oh, wow. That was the record. To another medieval church where I sent off for the records and got two boxes of files. Oh, wow. (laughs) Very different levels. Very different levels. I was going to ask whether whether people often do have the records, but so it varies just so much. It varies so much. Just like museum documentation. (laughs) Yes, Yes. it varies a lot, but it's worth asking the questions and it's worth Mm -hmm. searching for that information to help you when you're writing your condition report, there's a lot of research that you can do. Also, when you're actually putting together a schedule um, and pricing up a condition mm-hmm. report, mm-hmm. remember that you will want to add in time mm-hmm. so that you can look through that documentation. Half your work will be done prior to actually turning up. <laughs> yes. yes, it's important to do all, the, mm-hmm. all of that research beforehand mm-hmm. and talk to the parish about it. So include that in your pricing. Make mm-hmm. sure that you include that to do that. Good pro tip. I like it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so once you've done all of that documentation, that brings me on to documentation, mm-hmm. documentation, 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 which is key. <laughs> yes. Absolutely key to record what you've done and to give the parish copies of yeah. what you've done. So that then the parish puts that in their logbook and keeps it. Some of the dioceses keep that information as well. Mm-hmm. So the dioceses can be a good repository of information. So whenever you're looking at information, mm-hmm. ask the parish, what what do they have? Ask the diocese, what do they have? And the Church of England's Record Centre, 
what they have as well. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of information that can be out there. There are other sources of information as well. So the Courtauld, for example, has an amazing repository on wall paintings in churches. Oh, wow. So there's so much information out there. And we have um, the Antiquarian Horological Society has lots of information mm-hmm. on turret mm-hmm. clocks, yeah. which is in our now part of our uh, church heritage record. So there's loads of information out there. It's a question of being able to find it yeah. and knowing yes. where all that information is. But I think the more that you work in churches, you get used to where the information is, what questions to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, before then, you can look at what your treatment might be. Mm. <laughs> Which is step sort of 80 or something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it it is. Yes, you think the parish think that you're going in there to treat their painting. And in fact, you're doing all this research. Yeah. um, And coming up with, yes, treatment plan. Going on to the treatment itself, it's um, sometimes there are different ways to treat an object. There's not always one way. No, that's true. Mm -hmm. And um, so you may want to present options to the parish. But what you have to remember is that the parish is the client, but they will be looking to you mm-hmm. to help them decide what the best option mm-hmm. is. Um, and it may depend on the circumstances. Um, it may depend on the funding because they may want their... I use paintings quite a lot because they're very visual. Yes. Um, <laughs> and they may want their painting to look absolutely stunning again. But actually, what's more necessary is to stop it from falling off the wall. Yes. Yeah. And so that's a question of prioritising mm-hmm. the work, mm. what um, actually really needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so what's affordable and then what could be done. Yeah. So um, there are all of those those things to think about when you're actually looking at treatment options. So communication again, managing, Com- managing expectations. Managing expectations. Yes. And talking about it in language that's understandable. Mm-hmm. Yes. Don't, so, don't get too bogged down in jargon. No, no. Some of the best reports have um, an executive summary at the start. Oh, so I'm writing they're not down necessarily as well. called an executive summary, but it's but a it summary. Does the job exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're they're very clearly laid out to say this is the object. This is this is the underlying cause of the. Or, these are the symptoms. These are the effects. This is what we're seeing. Yeah. These are the potential causes. These are the recommendations. And the recommendations may be a conservation treatment, but they may also be further investigations. Mm-hmm. They may be that the fabric needs to be, uh, fabric issues need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And so it's making it really clear to the parish so the parish can understand what you're actually saying, yeah. what you're recommending and why you're recommending it. So conservation reports are really handy. And then documentation post-conservation. Oh, yeah. Post-conservation reports with sensible recommendations <laughs> yes not to keep this pristine <laughs> never sent rh at all times no fluctuations yes. keep people 50 meters from it at all times you yes know. yes it's having those sensible things yeah. such as if it needs a light dusting yeah then what to dust it with mm-hmm. yeah uh yes and you try to not have it directly over the heater and um you things like mm-hmm. that yeah, yeah maybe look at putting it somewhere else in the church or yeah if that's possible it's not always possible mm-hmm. um but yes looking at those sensible things that parishes can actually do so that they then undertake the maintenance so if there's maintenance needed that then they can do mm-hmm. that yeah and if it's if it goes too far then they just won't be able to achieve it anyway i suppose if it's if there's if it's not achievable then they won't know where to go no no, exactly. Speaking of challenges, something else that's quite challenging in a church setting can be the presence of bats. 
And actually, Christina Rosaic did an interview for us with James Hales, uh, and we're going to listen to that now. So my name is James Hales, and I work at the Institute of Archaeology, UCL, so part of University College London, and I am a, a senior teaching fellow in conservation. And a few years ago, you did a PhD about bats in churches, which is what I wanted to talk to you about today. Well, so the issue, uh, my, my PhD research was related to a, a potential conservation issue or a conservation conflict. And so as uh, some of you may be aware, there, there is a potential conflict between the idea of bats in churches and, and bats increasingly needing to use historic churches to maintain a foothold in, in their ecological environments and the associated problems that go with having historic buildings and churches that have large bat populations. But then on top of that, there's a bigger and broad issue, which is to do with the impact of bats within churches. Mm -hmm. And not as much of it is always about the damage from a conservator's perspective, as you might think. Okay. So what is it about? (laughs) What is it about? Well, I mean, churches are unique buildings and... I think one of the things that's a problem is for lots of historic churches, they've got all sorts of pressures that fall upon them now. Um, And one of those major pressures comes from the care and maintenance of of a historic building. And not only is it a historic building, but it's a historic building that is largely having to be looked after by a volunteer workforce. Now, lots of the churches that are affected by bats tend to be in a rural environment. And so that's compounded by the issues relating to the pressure on those churches to do with dwindling congregations and perhaps the church isn't being used as much as it could be. And so having bats potentially for a church congregation becomes a cost and it becomes a cost to a society or community surrounding that church that doesn't really have any resources. So they're already financially stretched because there's not a lot of money. They're stretched for time and energy because looking after an aging building and doing all the other ministerial and church work that you have to do is a big time pressure. And then if you end up with something like a a bat presence on top, not only does it start to impact on your missional objectives, so it's it's less less desirable for people to come and get married in your church, for example, or <laughs> it, it increases your workload because you've got lots of extra cleaning and tidying up to do. Yeah. Um, so it costs, it's like a double cost. And also, in addition, aspects of maintenance for your building, aspects of grant application, general sort of building work, you get an extra cost because you now can't do that work without potentially having to get a number of surveys done from uh, an environmental consultant or having to get local bat workers in to help you do that work. That's not a, that's a good thing from the, from the perspective of bat conservation, but what it can do is it, it further loads up, it further burdens these sort of very small group of sort of doughty volunteers mm-hmm. that are effectively trying to keep the plates spinning. And that's where the real pressure is, So for some churches, having a large bat population in your church can be a tipping point between your church being viable and non-viable. And that's not because the bats have made it unviable. It's 
more because there are lots of rural churches that are already teetering on that of are, are they are they going to be a regular place that's regularly used for worship um, and that's that's really so that the whole issue gets sort of all squashed together as from a conservative's perspective the more stakeholders you have the, the more opinions you have the more people place value in different areas and so actually the whole the whole like question of of bats in churches isn't as much about bats in churches it's as much to do with people and churches and people's relationship between them and their church and whether they view that as a building for mission a spiritual place a heritage structure or a little bit of everything. It gets tricky. Uh, from the sound of it, nobody would want bats in their church, but obviously bats are a protected species in the UK. So once you've got them, um, I would, you I do mean, have I, to, <laughs> to protect them. Absolutely. So first of all, you know, you, you have to qualify. There are some people that, that really do want bats in their church. Okay. And, <laughs> and they have bats, and there are lots of churches in fact, many, many of the rural historic churches that we have, it's, it's probably more realistic to say that every church has some bat presence. There, there will likely be a number of individuals, a number of bats there roosting, and, and actually you may not even know that they're there. So there are lots and lots of churches with bats. There are a smaller number of churches where they have a larger population of bats, and that's really where... So and that's and that's perhaps where the discussion gets misidentified, because often the, the title is about bats in churches. And the implication is that any bat in a church is problematic. And, and actually, there are lots of churches with lot, you know, with with a bat population and everything seems to work out OK. I mean, that's a good question to ask is, well, you know, have bats in churches always been an issue? Um, and largely, the reason it's become an issue in more recent years is because prior to the Wildlife and Countryside Act of 1981, any bats were regularly removed from churches and or exterminated when they were found roosting in churches in significant enough numbers to become noticed and problematic. And so post-1981, when it became illegal to do that, well, that's why we now have a situation where there are larger numbers of bats roosting in churches and you have um, people scratching their heads and thinking, well, OK, how do we now deal with this? We've got an issue. So what can people do uh, where they've got a bat population that for one reason or another is problematic? It's, it's very difficult. I mean, so there are lots of there are lots of sources of, of information out there and there are some mitigation strategies at the moment, I mean, the thing that the most effective way of dealing with bats in churches has, has largely been historically, the recommendation has been to clean up after them and to put sheets on things to protect them from bat droppings and urine. People often talk about exclusion as a way of dealing with a problem of bats in churches. They say, well, why, why can't we just move them and why can't we stop them coming back in but actually you know most most uk bat species are, are quite small and and they can probably it's very small crevices and cracks that bats will use as as, as entry and egress points yeah and and it's almost it, it it would be impossible and probably inadvisable to sort of block up all the holes mm. in a in a church that a bat would use to gain access as part of my research, I looked a little bit at coatings and, and things like that. And, and there, are, there aren't really any currently effective coatings that, that we would use. So 
there's some space for some some more research there. But also with coatings, we as conservators often know that coatings sometimes cause more problems than they solve. And again, the likelihood is is that you would require a conservator or someone with some degree of professional training to apply those coatings for you. So again, what you're delivering is a solution that comes with quite a heavy price tag. There is some good news. So one of the things that's happening now, I think as, as a result of different pieces of research that, that different people have done, the, the past sort of 17 years has been a, has been a much more collaborative process for, for sort of BATS research um, involving English Heritage, the Church Buildings Council, Natural England, um, certainly the BAT Conservation Trust. And as a result of that, we now everyone has a much better understanding of where everyone else is coming from. You mentioned earlier that a lot of the damage is caused by bat droppings and urine. Could you talk a little bit about uh, the kind of objects that are damaged and the sort of damage that they sustain? So um, I looked specifically at a a range of materials. I I didn't look at everything. So ultimately, I ended up looking at brasses in particular of a number of compositions I looked at granite, alabaster and Carrara marble from the perspective of of building fabric and sculptural monuments and funeral monuments. I looked at lead tin alloys, largely from the perspective of organ pipes, because most organ pipes are a, a lead or tin alloy in historic organs. And then I also looked at oak and also pitch pine. Lots of our historic churches have oak inside. And then some of the lots of Victorian pews and, and the Victoriana and things have gone is, is pitch pine a little bit later. You'll notice there that there aren't, for example, textiles represented. Mm-hmm. Um, stained, stained glass and glass isn't represented. But of those materials, I looked at those. And the way I looked at those was to create sample boards which I deployed in bat roosts, single single species bat roosts um, for a period of of a year. So and then you retrieve them and you basically study that interaction between what is what what change. And the way I looked at that work was I defined things as physical, chemical or visual change, because actually, as soon as you start calling things damage, that becomes uh, that's a function of the value or a rather a loss of value that people infer upon an object. So and in terms of in terms of what I found, well, you bat urine in particular does cause the corrosion of susceptible metal surfaces, um, not so much on the lead and the lead tin alloys, but certainly on the copper alloy. So brasses and things like that. We also get staining. And we get staining from urine. You get staining from droppings and urine in association, which is which is different. So actually, one of the things that the urine does is it, it solubilizes bile pigments out of the droppings. So you end up with this very brown liquid. And, and that obviously on something like a light colored marble funerary monument can be very disfiguring. So you get you get staining from liquid droppings and also droppings in isolation and different types, different species of bat tend to have slightly different types of dropping. You get watermarks on wooden surfaces. You get uh, often you see a white bloom developing in wax coatings. So often when you see these little white spots on wooden surfaces resulting from bat urine, a lot of the time, probably what you're seeing is is the fact that that surface has got a wax coating on and you're seeing that white bloom that, 
you commonly see on wax coated furniture and things when you've when you've had an aqueous liquid on there. Um, yeah, then you get a disruption of applied surface coatings and potentially one of the big issues that is, is an associated damage mechanism is that if you've got lots of droppings and lots of urine, then potentially that would promote lots of cleaning and then you've got a risk of, of people unintentionally damaging surfaces in trying to remove back droppings and urine. And there's some interesting stuff that goes on as a result of urea crystals and the urea content of urine, which has a, a mechanism relating to both its corrosion and, and a sort of a, a, a crystal disruption process for porous materials. So it sounds all sounds pretty grim, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so what can be done about this? As, as you said, prevention is a good strategy, but that's not ideal because everything ends up shrouded in plastic sheeting. Cleaning things that have been soiled is not ideal because of the wear and tear on the object. Well, I think one of the things that can be done is that we need to start having a conversation in which we are willing, because one of the reasons that you sometimes end up not being able to do very much, and I think this is this is really really common to to heritage and, and heritage conservation you get entrenched in positions because you know that as a conservator you for example you wouldn't normally let people that haven't been trained as a conservator clean things mm. so immediately there is there's a whole sort of raft of activities that you go well we we wouldn't do that because we don't do that if you look after a historic building and you or you're a planning consultant and you're used to dealing with listed building consent there's a whole raft of things that you just don't do because, well, it's a listed building. We don't do that. And to some degree with a church, there are also things that you just don't do because it's a church. The difficulty with the issue of bats in churches is because you've got people coming from three different directions, a historic building direction, a ministerial pr pr direction, and then a heritage direction. By the time that sort of magic Venn diagram of this isn't acceptable to them, this isn't acceptable to them, even though it would be acceptable to us, what happens is you end up with a big space in the middle of, of, of largely not being able to do anything. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is we need to, with a better understanding of the problem, both from a material sense, an ecological sense, and a social sense, we need to sort of explode that way of working and say we need to think about different ways of working that relate to this specific context of churches and we need to think about doing things differently and more radically both with our historic buildings and potentially asking some tricky questions because there are some churches that bats are causing a big problem but maybe that's not the fundamental problem that that church is facing and we have a lot of heritage um, in the UK and it costs a lot of money mm -hmm. to look after it all properly. And so we need to ask some questions about whether we can afford to do that and how we do that. And we need to ask questions about whether it's appropriate to uh, deal with our historic buildings from a very traditional art, architecture and archaeology value perspective or whether we need to start maximising things like their ministerial function or their spiritual function or their relevance to communities. And that might entail changes to the historic building fabric that historically we haven't made, but perhaps we should be making. So I would I would say we need to we need to think more radically. Uh, there you go. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> There's a challenge. Well James Hales, thank you very much for talking to the C word. You're very welcome.
I hadn't realized that it would be so gross and visceral. <laughs> like, sorry if anyone's oh, yeah. eating or like if you've got someone. a fairly weak stomach. I mean, it's the boards are such an interesting way of collecting data, but God, I'm thinking about the hazards. No, don't think about it too much. Oh. <laughs> The trick fascinating thing. work fascinating work actually yes. I, I do think something to say quickly here is in the uk bats are not considered vast health hazards as they are in other parts of the world no that's the truth. they don't carry rabies they don't carry no, that's, particular that's infections point. that have to be dealt with also, by I professionals love bats. so bats are, bats so are the cute. cutest they're the cutest I'm and they're not who, poisonous i want those people who put up like bat houses and yeah. stuff like that right <laughs> do I, that yes oh that, that is the kind of level of weird i am but i, I think if you spoke to james more about his phd you may find that um there are some health and safety implications <laughs> of dealing with a lot of bat poo and bat urine i'm absolutely certain oh, god <laughs> yes <laughs> i will leave that one there but um <laughs> what's quite interesting is um james's phd has been really very useful for for the work that we do and there's um a project that has started as james mentioned there is much more collaboration now so there's a bats in churches partnership project Ooh. that's been funded by the heritage lottery fund mm -hmm. so it is a partnership between natural england ourselves at the cathedral and church buildings division at the church of england Historic England, the Bat Conservation Trust and the Churches Conservation Trust, mm. who've all got together to look at the issues. And the phase one is just about to finish, I think, in June uh, 2018. And we're pulling forward uh, for a stage two bid to look at some pilot projects where we can look at all of the issues that James has raised. It's not just the, the physical problems of clearing up a lot of bat poo and mm -hmm. bat urine. Mm. It's those wider issues of how that affects the the parishes, how that affects their ability to think about the problem, mm. and also how much of a problem it actually is on for the heritage itself. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, because it can be a, it can be a perceived problem, whereas the effect on mm. the heritage might actually be quite small. But for the church, for the parish itself, for the parishioners who have to clear mm. it up, it's a big problem. Mm. Yeah. So it's all of those social issues around um, what do you actually do about your bats? What mm -hmm. can you do about mm -hmm. your bats? Can you live with them? Are the ways that you can live with them? Mm -hmm. So that's a project um, that's ongoing at the moment. So yeah, that's a, a very exciting project. And we're very grateful for, to James for the work that he's been doing. And it does raise all those bigger issues about conservation and mission because this is something that we are, uh, discuss quite a lot in our division. Our division is the Cathedral and Church Buildings Division, and our role is to provide advice to our churches and cathedrals on uh, my role is conservation of their historic interiors, but also um, their churchyard structures. Uh, but we provide advice on changes that churches with an historic building may want to make to their uh, to their buildings, such mm -hmm. as putting in toilets, <laughs> putting in refreshment facilities. And how do you actually do that in a way mm -hmm. that's sympathetic? Mm -hmm. How do you build an extension to a church to an historic church that's actually going to be sympathetic? to the building and also the surrounding area um, and how do you build that community engagement in the churches 
is. And so what we're keen on is not conservation or mission, but actually conservation for mission. What I'm really interested in, and I've spoken with James and Dean Sully at UCL about this, is how we can work out the philosophies behind conservation of our historic interiors that help mission. And a lot of that relates to the the histories and the stories that our mm-hmm. objects contain. Our churches, some of them are a thousand years old, but they contain all of this history and all of these personal stories. So we tend to think about, when we're talking about churches, we tend to concentrate on, say, the monumental aspects of yeah. them. And um, because they're the things that we see. But there was an interesting project in Cambridgeshire, which was an archaeological project that was looking at graffiti. Oh, I love things like this. Oh, yes. Graffiti on buildings. Graffiti on buildings. Fantastically interesting. And there was a particular church, Kingston All Saints and St. Andrew in mm-hmm. Cambridgeshire, where uh, the archaeologists discovered lots of graffiti that came from the times of plague. Oh, oh my wow. God. There was a wall that had um, dates and names scribed on them because Mm -hmm. there was a particular period when the church was used as the school. Mm -hmm. And so it had lots of children in there and the children would scribe their names Mm -hmm. on the walls and write on the walls. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a particular story that that could be told about one particular family where you could see the names of these children. And then you trace them in the burial records because they oh. were affected oh, by the the illness that was going mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. In, that, in that period. And so you can, it was a really sad mm-hmm. story that this graffiti was telling. Mm-hmm. So the conservation of that graffiti is really important mm-hmm. for the yeah. story of that community. So our conservation can unlock these stories and these histories and also help to engage parishioners now and the communities now with what they have, Mm -hmm. what they have within the church now and how they can use that now. Speaking of graffiti, I just thought I'd throw this in quickly. We have a little place here in Rotherham called Chapel on the Bridge. It's one of very few chapels, indeed, on a bridge um, (laughs) in the country. I think there are three or four, I was told, when I went in there. Yes. Uh, It's a lovely, very small building and has a crypt downstairs. The crypt was briefly used as a jail, which means that they... It's not terrifying at all. (laughs) Oh, I know. Um, (laughs) But anyway, they've got the original doors that went with the jail and it's covered in names of the people who sat sat in the cells who oh, just you know, carved in their names it is beautiful and they are well attested in you know records that you mm-hmm. know they were really there they oh, really wow. were in for something mm-hmm. uh, and it's just this extraordinary little time capsule mm-hmm. of oh my god the doors are here and yeah. they've got all these names on them i love graffiti graffiti is great Right, so next up, we've actually got another interview. I think I'd describe this as like the joy of working with buildings, but you know, just listen to it and enjoy. Uh, this is with Rachel Morley, who at the time of recording uh, worked for Churches Conservation Trust and was a trustee of SPAB, which is the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings. But since our interview, she's also been made director of the Friends of Friendless Churches as well. Congratulations, Rachel. Congratulations, Congratulations Rachel. So yeah, well, we're just going to listen to that now. Um, so today we're talking about churches and I'm here with Rachel. Rachel, would you like to introduce yourself and what you do? 
Yes, I would love to. Um, so I am Rachel Morley. I love old buildings, um, especially churches. So like, what's, what's your conservation background and, and how did you get started working with architecture? Oh, well, so um, I guess I really took a scenic route into conservation, like lots of people do, I guess. I studied process and chemical engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was great fun. Um, but halfway through, um, when I was specialising in pharmaceutical engineering, I did a six-month work placement in a pharmaceutical plant. And I just kind of felt like there were so many other things that I loved. I loved science, but I loved art, and I loved architecture and history. And I kind of thought if I stayed kind of in that career path, all of those interests, I would never kind of get to explore them. So I came over to England and I did a month's work experience um, in Shropshire, working as an assistant historic building surveyor. Um, And from that moment on, I was sold. So I finished my degree and then I went on and I did uh, a postgrad in building conservation and repair. And I came back to Shropshire and I spent some time working again with that historic building surveyor, which was fantastic. And then... My dreams came true when I won an icon internship to specialise in stone and plaster conservation. You know, it was just fantastic. So I spent 12 months um, working with Hearst Conservation in Lincolnshire. And then, very kindly, Hearst offered me a full-time job afterwards. So another dream came true. And I guess, yeah, from, from there, I um, I just got to kind of work everywhere, all across the UK and abroad, like working on everything kind of from, you know, the Palace of Westminster to, you know, 19th century hotels in Paris and, you know, kind of to little kind of vernacular cottages and churches. And then I became a guardian of the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings. And most recently, um, I've been made a trustee. So that's kind of very exciting. Hey, congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm delighted. Wow, that's that's quite a journey. I love it. So how did you end up working in ecclesiastical environments? Again, it was kind of, it was really quite organic, really, I suppose. I, so I was working with Hearst Conservation in Lincolnshire and uh, I had worked on lots of churches with them. And then I, and I started writing a column for a local kind of magazine on hidden architectural heritage and things like that. So kind of in getting to write that, I started really exploring where I lived and I kind of found the most amazing places within like, you know, a 30 minute drive of where I lived like that. So I started writing about churches more and more. And then, as I said, I was a guardian with the SPAB um, and I became a judge for their John Betjeman Award, which celebrates excellence in church conservation and repair. And so again, I got to go out and see fantastic repair projects firsthand. And then I really kind of just started to visit more churches, kind of read about them, research them. And I was just absolutely blown away by this kind of there's amazing buildings and artifacts that were like right on everybody's doorstep and kind of talking to the people in the churches I kind of came face to face and understood the challenges and um, that you know churches and communities face to look after these these buildings um, and then at that point kind of very happily I guess um, a job was advertised at the Churches Conservation Trust and yeah and off I went so the Churches Conservation Trust they basically kind of rescue repair and regenerate churches that are closed for worship so churches that don't really have kind of people using them anymore and all their buildings are listed and it's uh, and some are scheduled ancient monuments so kind of the real kind of cream of the crop of of church buildings so so yeah so that's what I've been kind of doing for the last few years now. God, that's fantastic. I love it. So working in these sorts of environments, what's the biggest challenge? I guess kind of from a kind of a 
really kind of practical point of view, I think really funding is the biggest challenge, actually. Mm. And from both sides of the coin, I think, you know, the Church of England uh, has 16,000 churches um, and they care for about about half of all the grade one listed buildings in England. And that's a huge responsibility for for these, you know, ever dwindling kind of congregations to maintain and look after these buildings. And I guess um, lots of lots of them may be unable to kind of do regular maintenance or kind of understand the types of repairs that are needed. Um, so I guess kind of funding in that way um, and, of course, uh, you know, heritage crime, all the lead thefts and all these yeah. types of things. And the Heritage Lottery Fund has kind of um, cancelled its kind of uh, dedicated stream of grants. And equally, the Roof Repair Fund has been cancelled. So... So, you know, these are real kind of challenges. But then, I guess, on the other side of the coin, if places have too much money, then they kind of want to change around the buildings too much and they want to kind of put in underfloor heating and take out all the pews and do all these kind of fashionable things. And, of course, churches have to adapt and evolve, but it's kind of about doing so kind kind of respectfully and sensitively, I guess. Yeah, money is what it kind of all boils down to in many, many ways, I guess. Funding is so vital to make any of these things happen, and that's... Yeah, that's that's the tricky bit and that's true for all of conservation of course that we yeah. we need people to realize that it's worth spending money on us um, well absolutely yeah and i guess in my uh, kind of something that i've kind of found really in my line of work so you know the heritage lottery fund are fantastic in what they do but most of the churches that i work with are really quite remote and the heritage lottery fund kind of want um kind of big interpretation and engagement community engagement things like that yeah and for these buildings that kind of are basically just kind of a box in a field. You can't kind of, um, yeah. you can't meet all the requirements and that becomes really, really tricky. So you're clearly very passionate about what you do, but what's the absolutely best thing about working with what you do? That is hard. I guess there are three things that come together as one thing, I suppose. Uh, kind of building archaeology and kind of you yeah. know, being a bit of a detective and seeing how things kind of go together. And I guess, you know, these places architecturally and archaeologically kind of understanding all of that, but also kind of, I love how, you know, there are these little things that have stood kind of, they're ancient buildings kind of in a very alien world now. And, you know, the conditions inside have changed dramatically over kind of centuries, but also externally. So kind of in terms of the community, but obviously like environmental changes and all of these types of things and how everything is kind of affecting this little building that has just stood there for a long, long time. And I guess then on top of that, it probably sounds really cheesy, but... I just love going into these places and if you kind of go in with a kind of a, a kind of a uh, being sensitive to your surroundings you can really and you think about like you know like we were talking about wall paintings you know these are places where people poured their faith out where they celebrated where they sang where they cried where they worked where they worshipped and you just kind of feel a huge kind of surge of being part of something much bigger than you know you know the present I guess you know it's kind of like a time crash where everything kind of comes together um and you can you know uh, you know you can see kind of you know the centuries of the faith and the walls and the worn floors and and then I suppose kind of finally and this all does kind of come to a point you know these churches have some of the most incredible art and architecture in the country and it's like the most amazing dispersed museum you could you know you could ever hope for you know most of the artifacts could easily be in the vna but they're not they're kind of sitting in a field like you know in kind of suffolk or something like that and i guess what's really great is that they're not in the vna that they're in their original context and they are there 
waiting for kind of somebody to stumble in and to explore and kind of really interact with. For me, the best part is that I actually get to play a small part in protecting all of them. And yeah, that's kind of, that's the best part for me. No, oh, I love it. That's great. It's a really good point because these things, they are out there and... And that's, yeah, a, that's exactly. a really special thing, actually. For me, that's what I love. I just, you know, I visit a church, you know, at least once a week um, or at least one church a week. And, you know, it's just kind of pushing open the door and never kind of knowing what you're going to find. And kind of whether it's kind of medieval graffiti, kind of you're going around with your torch, which I do like to do. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, you just you just never know what's going to kind of hold. And I guess my 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 boss at the Church's Conservation Trust has, a, has, a, has an analogy that he likes to use for um, how church just come alive when somebody steps in so you know the Billie Jean video where Michael Jackson is stepping on the pavement and it lights up he said that is what it's like when a church it's just it just sits there and the minute you put your foot on the on the kind of flagstone inside the door over the threshold this the place kind of you know lights up and it becomes alive and it you know you it starts this kind of interaction yeah it's a good point because you know they're they're meant to be places for people that's that's kind of where it's at it's it's the people that unlock it but yeah no thank you very much no, thank you for talking to us. No, fine. Thank you for having me. Easily the happiest interview ever. I love that interview. <laughs> it, 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 all the privileges that you have with working with churches. And it brings into focus as conservators, we're not necessarily the best paid people in the world. <laughs> but when you nope. get to meet all the parishioners and you feed off their enthusiasm and you see these amazing amazing sites and you have all those amazing experiences it just makes your day and it makes you continue want to do the work that you do and the job that you do so I completely agree with Rachel. The original context is so important as well isn't it because you absolutely it sounds negative to say it like this but you you lose something when it's taken out of that context and away from the sort of general vibe of the area and the the feeling and the age of it and the deep time um the deep time feeling you do you do i love going around churches obviously not every church visit can happen in sunlight (laughs) because that's the nature of our job but you go into some churches and some cathedrals um i've done this at gloucester cathedral and at um hereford cathedral and you go in and you get a shaft of sunlight shining through the stained glass and it lights up the pillars. And it's the most amazing experience to see. And you cannot get that with stained glass that's in a museum. No, no. You just can't get that. So having things in situ, it really makes all that difference. And it's those, it's those intangible elements. It's so important. It's the feeling that you get when it's all together in that space and it's still in use. It's just wonderful. So yes, you get cold, you get wet, you've nowhere to go to the toilet, (laughs) but you've just had the most stunning experience of stained glass um, on a pillar. So yeah, yeah. that's true. That's true. Thanks everyone for listening and thank you, Janet, for joining us. It's thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you very pleasure. much for having me. I've Aww. really enjoyed it and I hope other people enjoy the podcast. Hooray! And that was on comments, questions, and corrections. We've actually had a conservator in Germany, Eva, uh, write in and tell us a little bit uh, about working in churches. She writes. I'm a polychromy conservator in northern Germany, and I work mostly in churches on sculptures and altars. 
In the church where I work at the moment, a musician rehearsed very beautiful music for a concert and some weddings for the last few days. He played the piano and one day a singer with an opera voice, I have no idea what that's called in musical terms, and a flutist with a cross flute were also there. I love having the possibility of getting to listen to live concerts during work. Sometimes someone plays the organ in churches, sometimes someone sings just to test the acoustics. Really another reason to love my job. She also wrote, I've been working in a church for a few weeks uh, that was frequented a lot by tourists during the summer holidays. Uh, we were two conservators working on the Baroque uh, pulpit, painted and gilded with nice sculptures on it. And as soon as we finished the upper levels and didn't use scaffolding anymore, people approached us about our work and asked us questions. Some days it felt like Groundhog Day and I would have liked to sign with all the answers to the most common questions and remarks. Like, are you gilding this? Are you putting on new paint? What exactly are you doing? How long does the conservation take? Most churches I've worked in were closed to the public during conservation works because there had been a lot more work going on beforehand, such as painting the walls, laying new floors, renewing the electricity, working on the building structure, new roofs. And uh, conservation work really was just the last thing carried out. So those building sites were normally closed to the public until all the works are finished and there is a grand reopening. This normally leads to a stressful schedule for conservators who are the last people on site and get most time problems when stonemasons or painters or electricians didn't finish on time. But I love working in churches. I like the buildings, the feeling of the room, the quietness, the possibility to see more of the country. I really love my work. Greetings from Germany, Ava. Thank you so much for sharing, Ava. That was wonderful. Ava actually wrote this to us last year, but I've been holding on to this little gem for because I knew we were doing this episode, basically. So thank you so much for sharing. And if you have any stories about working in churches and the work that you do there, then, you know, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. As always, we welcome any questions, comments or corrections that you have. We love hearing from you. By the way, people, we just put out a shout out on social media asking for contributions for a future episode. Now, there's not a lot of time for you to get your uh, stuff in order and record this and send it to us. So the deadline is short. Sorry about that. We'd like to hear from conservators all over the world, wherever you work, and we'd like you to answer a couple of questions for us. Uh, you can record your answers on your mobile phones, your smartphone, your laptop. Almost everything has a voice recording app these days and many are available for free. Simply record yourself answering the following questions and somehow share them with us. You can dropbox them to us at the at gmail.com or you can share them on Google Drive or if they're small enough, you can email them to us. Basically, get in touch and we will find a way to get those fast to us. Anyway, the answers we like from people all over the world are what is your name and where do you work? By the way, that doesn't have to be your exact institution, but uh, country and or city or region would be really helpful. How did you get into conservation and where did you train? What's been your favorite object or project? And what were the main struggles? And what's the scariest thing you've ever found in a pest trap? The deadline for getting fast to us is uh, April the 29th. So that's not an awful lot of time. But that just means get on it, people. Come on. Let, we want to hear from you. We want voices from all over the world. Anyway, we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much. Patreon shout out. 
Welcome to our latest patrons, Victoria and Alejandra. Thank you so much for supporting our work on Patreon. We really appreciate it and we couldn't keep going without you guys. So thank you so much. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash the C word. Thanks for listening. We're the C word and you've been listening to Janet Berry, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jen Mathiasen. Join us next time for an episode about how to look after your conservator. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. <laughs>